Glorious victories result in great rejoicing. For example, think about Roman triumph. A Roman triumph was a celebration held in Rome after a massive victory. So the Senate authorized the ornate, lavish spectacle of a party to remind the people of the superiority of Rome's military might. Again, glorious victories result in great rejoicing. So Roman triumphs took the whole day. Started with a big speech in the morning to the Senate, magistrates, and people, and the entire crowd offered standing ovations as they praised their victorious commander. Then he would be They'd put on a special robe, offer sacrifice, sacrifices, and lead a huge parade through the streets of Rome. In an ornate chariot pulled by big white stallions, had a crown on his head, branch in one hand, scepter in the other, all symbols of Rome's victory over her enemies. And after the chariot came officers on horseback and then soldiers who sang victory songs at the top of their lungs, ringing out throughout the city to celebrate their triumph. And of course, there was a big feast ordained with everything that went on well into the night. Why? Because glorious victories result in great rejoicing. And we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, just think about what's going to happen after the Super Bowl tonight. Because tonight's game is the culmination of an entire season. Intensity has been building since the playoffs until it reaches this final climactic game. And of course, the result leads to tremendous joy because glorious victories result in great rejoicing. What does that have to do with Exodus? Well, the events in Exodus have been building to this glorious climactic conclusion, haven't they? I mean, do you realize that after today, the first half of Exodus is over because the Israelites will see God work a glorious victory over the Egyptians, the epic redemption of God's people, as he crushes Pharaoh once and for all in order to free the Israelites from death and enslavement. And standing on the other side of the Red Sea, what will they do? They will greatly rejoice because glorious victories result in great rejoicing. And as we'll see, this song of celebration isn't just their song, but it's our song. Because this redemption, this, this deliverance, as great as it is, points forward to an even greater deliverance in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So my hope is you'll see the greatness of God in this glorious victory resulting in your great rejoicing, ultimately in the Lord Jesus for all eternity. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13, verse 17, page 55. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I also encourage you to have my outline in front of you, Song of Salvation. As you're turning, allow me to just put our passage in context. God's been saying to Pharaoh, let my people go since all the way back in chapter 5. But Pharaoh has rejected God's command the entire time. What does God do? Well, he responds by sending the 10 plagues, including the death of the firstborn son. And he does that for a very specific purpose, so that all the world might know, including the Egyptians, that God is God and there is no other. So all that's taken place, and now 600,000 men, approximately 2 million people, are on the move. The great exodus from Egypt. By the way, this in book gets its name because of this, right? Exodus means departure. So this is the definitive event when the Israelites leave Egypt and head toward the promised land. Let's pick it up. Verse 17, chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, let lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 
And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So three things. Starting with A, God leads his people. Verse 17 says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. But verse 18, God led them by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So God is clearly leading his people. But what you need to understand is how difficult this must have been for the Israelites. Now, why do I say that? Well, because if you look at a map, God did not take them by way of the most direct route from Goshen to Canaan. In fact, let me show you a map. Okay, the most direct route from Goshen to the promised land is this caravan right here toward the land of the Philistines. Right? So go right along the Mediterranean Sea, which if you can picture this would have been like I-91. Right? There would have been three lanes going both ways. You could have had 65 miles an hour, like 700 miles. Like you can be there walking less than a month. That's not the way God takes them. He takes them south. Here's where they cross the Red Sea. I think that visual is helpful. Right? Just for you to understand that he's taking them in a totally different direction than the shortest route to Canaan. They take the short route. They're there probably 24 days walking. That's not the direction God leads his people. Instead, he takes them south. Why in the world does he do that? Does God not like highways? Does God not like efficiency? Is God a God who prefers the scenic route? Or, or maybe God is a God who just doesn't have a very good GPS. No. God was leading them south for their own good and for his own glory, based on their own spiritual maturity level, which wasn't strong. Verse 17 says, he led them this way, lest his people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So he knows if they're going to have to fight to move forward to take the promised land, they're not at a spiritual maturity level where they're going to be able to do so. Instead, they'd end up back in Egypt, enslaved oppressed, and struggling. God is a good God. God's a good shepherd who knows his sheep, and he knows what they can handle, and he knows what they can't handle. So A, God leads his people. B, God fulfills his promises. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Most of you already know Exodus is the continuation of Genesis, and therefore the promises God made in Genesis, including the promises to Abraham of a great name, a great nation, great land, and to be a great blessing, find the start of their fulfillment in the book of Exodus. We know from Galatians, right, that they find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the greatest name. He inherits the greatest nation. He secures the greatest land. And it's only in him that we find the greatest blessing of salvation. But in Exodus, we find these promises fulfilled incrementally and historically. Like Exodus chapter 1, when the people were multiplying and the land was full of them, that's the great nation promise being fulfilled incrementally and historically. So Joseph wholeheartedly believed God would fulfill his promise to bring a people out of Egypt and provide them with a great land. So he makes his brothers swear based on God's promises to bring his bones out of Egypt and take them all the way with them to the promised land. So verse 19, tucked in here neatly, serves as confirmation that B, God fulfills his promises. Which brings us to see that God dwells with his people. 
Verse 20 says, And they moved from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Verse 22 says, The pillar did not depart from before the people. So verses 17 and 18 tell us that God leads his people, but verses 20 to 22 tell us exactly how he does that. Through a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So it's always visible. It is always with them. It is always leading and guiding and directing. So God dwells with them and he tells them where to go. Now just think about that for a moment. How awesome is that? I mean, wouldn't you love God to be going before you over the course of your day? His provision, his protection, his guidance, never ceasing, always constant, leading, guiding, and directing you like a good shepherd, leading you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Wouldn't that be awesome? And yet, I think there's a real tension here that we would have with this arrangement. And that's the fact that God is not really speaking to them from this cloud. So he's not explaining his directions to them. He's not negotiating the plan. He's just leading and he's expecting them to follow. Trusting and obeying with every single step. Now, I bring that up for a reason. Because God's not taking them in a direction that they would appreciate. As you already know, just showed you on the map. He often takes us in directions that we don't appreciate. You already know that from your own lives. Yet I want to encourage you this morning. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. God is always working all things for our good and for his glory all at the same time. Romans 8.28 says God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's true even when the direction doesn't make any sense to you. I mean, you have to realize God's leading at this point in the story in a direction that wouldn't have made sense to you at all. And yet think about what he's doing because he's leading them to the most glorious example of his power and his authority and his salvation in the entire Old Testament. So listen when I say God knows what he's doing here and in your life as well. He knows. He's leading. Trust him and follow faithfully. Number one, salvation anticipated. Number two, salvation accomplished. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 8, Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharath between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Now, we don't know all the exact locations. The sea, of course, is the Red Sea, but otherwise we're not sure exactly. What we do know, however, from a military standpoint, is this little detour 
doesn't make any sense at all. Because the Israelites were well on their way to freedom. When all of a sudden, God changes the plan, right? Verse 2, God says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp somewhere between Migdol and the sea. Which means that they're surrounded by desert with their backs against a big body of water. So military speaking, they're totally exposed. And this is a very unhelpful, dangerous position for them to be in. Because if they're attacked, where in the world are they going to go? In addition, they changed directions with approximately 2 million people they turned back. So, so this gives Pharaoh the impression that they're a totally confused group of people who don't know and have no idea exactly what they're doing, which causes him to be emboldened all the more and pursue them, not to kill the Israelites, but to retrieve them as slaves again so they can serve his political plans, programs, and endeavors. And yet all of this is clearly part of God's good and perfect plan because he's clearly calling the shots, right? He's leading. But why would he do this? Why would he place his people in harm's way? Well, the text answers, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this should not surprise us. This has been God's intentions all along. In fact, if you would, flip back to chapter 6, verse 6. A couple pages back, chapter 6, verse 6. Look at what God says. Exodus 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know. What shall you know? That I am the Lord. He's talking exclusively here to the Israelites. Flip forward to chapter 7, verse 4. Exodus 7, Four, God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So God's orchestrating all these events for one overarching purpose, his own glory. A, God's intention has always been and will always be to glorify his name. Now, some of you might think that sounds conceited or arrogant. But God's the only being in all of creation who's actually worthy of all glory and honor and praise because he's the most wonderful being in all of creation. Only God is all-knowing, all-powerful in all places. Only God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Only God is worthy of glory. But then you might ask, why is he hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, I would suggest God's not forcing Pharaoh to do anything that Pharaoh doesn't want to do himself. Because all the way through Exodus, we've been told not only that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Even here, verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 8, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But right there, right in the middle, verse 5, it says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people fled, what does Pharaoh do? And what does his servants do? By their own desire, they change their mind. So rather than letting God's people go, they decide in and of themselves to chase them down. So Pharaoh's doing exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. He's rejecting God's commands and he's pursuing God's people. So yes, without question, God is sovereign over all things and he certainly hardened Pharaoh's 
heart. But that doesn't diminish the fact that Pharaoh is responsible. He's accountable for his actions. He's doing what he wants to do, even at the same time as God is sovereign. No tension. Those things are compatible in the Bible. God's justice is not in question here at all. Which brings us to be God's plan to save a fearful people. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 14. So the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pahaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's good. It's really good. They cried out to the Lord. But, verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Now, can you even imagine? I mean, just, just picture this unfolding in your mind's eye. You've just been freed from Egypt. You've been traveling. And now you've come to a beautiful spot overlooking the Red Sea with a gorgeous view. And the Lord is with you. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. So things are good. Like things are really good. When all of a sudden, here comes all of Pharaoh's horses. And all of Pharaoh's chariots and all of Pharaoh's horsemen and soldiers and officers and men. So literally, after the plagues, everything that Pharaoh's got left in Egypt is coming after you. So no surprise. The Israelites are terrified. Verse 10 says they feared greatly. No surprise that they feared greatly. Lots to fear here. But what is surprising are the comments that they're making. Including, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Just think about that based on what you know in and of yourself about Egypt. John McKay says Egypt was a land obsessed with death and making provisions for death all over the place. That's why Egypt has so many pyramids. So many tombs dedicated to their pharaohs who are dead. So whatever Egypt lacked, it was not graves. Israelites are obviously not doing well. Not trusting the Lord in the midst of difficulty, which, by the way, is all just a precursor to what's going to happen in the wilderness where they're constantly grumbling, unending, complaining, whatever things get difficult. And crying out, to go back to Egypt. But it highlights for us, doesn't it, that the Israelites' question is not really a question, but a criticism of Moses' decisions and therefore ultimately of God's leadership, which is obvious when they say, verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians rather than to die in the wilderness. Seriously? You mean the place where you were enslaved and oppressed for 400 years? That's where you would prefer to go? You would rather go back to where they were throwing your babies in the Nile in order to kill them? Are you serious? Rather than being here, I understand it's scary, but rather than being here with God's presence and God's protection. You know what that does for us? It highlights the fact that God does not save a people because they're great in number, Deuteronomy 7, or because they're special 
or because they're worthy or noble or wise or don't ever get afraid or are better than others. No. God saves a people to demonstrate his own mercy and his own grace so that they might know him. So, so he makes the decision to set his affection on them, independent of who they are, and declares, they are my treasured possession. Even though, number one, the Israelites feared greatly. But what a wonderful moment for Moses, because he declares truth in the midst of the lies, and he says rightly, verse 13, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. God is going to do this. What faith declaring it to be true. As we move forward, I, I don't want familiarity to breed contempt for you. This is an absolutely awesome salvation. But but before we read it, like I, I want you to recognize that from a human perspective, this is like mission impossible, right? The, the Israelites are pinned against the Red Sea. They've got the desert on either side, and the greatest military force in the world is coming at them. Not humanly possible. And yet, what a perfect stage to set up God's authority, power, dominion, and glory. See, God's provision of salvation. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 31. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who is going before the host of Israel moved and went behind And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. Pause for a moment. I want you to realize the angel of God, I believe, is different than the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. Most commentaries suggest that this is not some ordinary angel, but instead that this is actually the second person of the Trinity, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you recognize that, then you recognize that both God the Father and God the Son are fighting here for God's people, putting themselves between God's people and God's enemy in order to provide this glorious salvation. Okay, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, notice, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch, your, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one remained. Verse 29, 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Therefore, verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Uh, Isn't that an absolutely incredible salvation that God so gloriously provided? I mean, let's just list all the miraculous things that he did in this single event, right, right? He confusing the Egyptian army, splitting the Red Sea, piling up the water both on the right side and the left side. Enabling the Israelites to walk straight through two million people, dry ground, clogging the Egyptian wheels and then crashing down the entire Red Sea so that every single Israelite is saved and alive and every single Egyptian is drowned and dead. Incredible salvation that God alone provided so that all the Israelites and all the Egyptians might know that God is God and there is no other. Now, of course, not everyone believes that. Which, by the way, I find completely ironic. Right? That that God designed and accomplished this miraculous salvation so that all the people might believe, the Israelites and the Egyptians. But how does the world respond to this? They don't. Instead, they immediately question and reject. Tim Chester lists two specific ways in which people reject God's power, God's authority, and God's greatness in this salvation. Number one, some say the Exodus was merely a natural phenomenon. So they would argue, listen to this, high winds and a low tide. That's what explains it, natural phenomenon. And yet the Bible says there were two walls of water. How would the wind do that? How would a low tide do that? How would the wind create a lane so big, so wide, that two million people could walk through it on dry ground? How how would the wind do that exactly? And what about the timing? I mean, Moses commands it. Moses ends it. How do you explain that from a natural phenomenon point of view? Others would argue, number two, That it wasn't the Red Sea at all, but instead it was the Reed Sea. So a shallow, marshy area in which the Israelites could cross on foot, but the Egyptians would get totally stuck in the mud. Now, I'm sure that you've heard this story, but a guest preacher once preached on the Exodus. And as he was preaching, a man in the congregation actually stood up and yelled from his seat, Praise God for taking all of these Israelites through the deep waters. What a glorious miracle. The problem, of course, was that the preacher didn't actually believe that the Exodus was miraculous. So he immediately started explaining how it was probably a shallow, marshy area in which the Israelites crossed on foot, but the Egyptians got stuck in the mud. So the man in the congregation stands up again and he yells out from his seat, praise God for drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a glorious miracle. I really don't want to be misunderstood with that. I mean, I just think it's helpful to have comic relief sometimes in a sermon, right? But... Like, I'm not making fun of people who hold that interpretation or, or sit there, right? I used to be one of those people. Like, I, I, 
Miracles couldn't happen. You had to be able to explain it scientifically, right? So that's not my intention. My point instead is for you as you read the Bible. The the normal reading of the Bible here is that this is a glorious miracle. I don't want that to intimidate us, scare us, or cause us to shrink back in any way, especially in light of our current culture. Because the God of the Bible is a signs and wonders working God. I mean, just think about creation. What did God do in creation? God causes the waters to be separated from the dry ground. How did he do that? By the Spirit of God. The wind of God or or the breath of God blowing over the surface of the water. Well, isn't that the same thing that's going on here? God separating the waters from the dry ground, blowing them back by the Spirit of God or the wind of God? Just think about what God is doing in this glorious salvation. This is a Trinitarian work of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit providing a glorious salvation for the people of God. In fact, look at what the people are going to sing in just a moment. Chapter 5, chapter 15, verse 8. Right, right, they're singing that this takes place by the blast of God's nostrils, by the breath of God. Father, Son, Spirit. My point is, if we believe the creation, in creation, why would we have any problem believing in miracles? God is a signs and wonders working God who demonstrates his power, his protection, and his provision by taming the sea all over the Bible, including the Lord Jesus, who calms the wind and the waves by the word of his power. So miraculous, yes, without a doubt. Fiction, absolutely not. This is just the God of the Bible providing a glorious, miraculous, historical, powerful salvation for the people of God that must be celebrated. Number three, salvation celebrated. Because glorious victories always result in great rejoicing. Now, as I read, I want you to notice how the people praise God for three very specific things. They're all listed right there in your outline. Number one, for destroyed enemies. Number two, for delivered people. And number three, for a promised inheritance. So follow along as I read, but I'm going to actually start in verse 21 because I believe Miriam is the one who actually kicks off the song of salvation and then the people respond. So verse 21, and Miriam sang to them, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now flip back to verse 1. They respond. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, notice, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Verse 10. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Swallowed who? The Egyptians, the enemies of God. Number one. 
They praise God for destroyed enemies. Number two, they praise God for delivered people. Notice the immediate change in focus starting in verse 13. For you have led in your steadfast love. Who have you led in your steadfast love? The people whom you have redeemed. God's delivered people. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seed the inhabitants of Felicia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away, terror and dread fall upon them. Why? Because of the greatness of God's arm. They are still as stone until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God's delivered people. So they praise God for destroyed enemies. They praise God for delivered people. And now number three, they praise God for a promised inheritance. Verse 17, for you, God will bring them. You will bring them in and you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your own abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And there the Lord will reign forever and ever, implied that he will reign forever and ever with his delivered people. Now, as we close and we consider application, I want you to think long and hard about where we're exactly at in Israel's history so that we can make the right redemptive connections. Meaning the people of God have experienced a glorious victory, haven't they? I mean, all the Egyptians are dead on the side of the Red Sea. And yet they're alive. They're, they're gloriously alive. So God has delivered them both from death and from enslavement to Egypt. And is right now promising, right after they pass the Red Sea, he's promising to take them all the way home to the promised land. But as I showed you earlier, that's not going to be a short trip. There's still a long way for them to go. So they're rejoicing in God's glorious salvation. But they've still got 40 years in the wilderness. Well, they'll spend most of their time grumbling and complaining against the Lord in God's glorious sanctification plan before they ever get to the ultimate destination and finally dwell in God's presence. Nonetheless, glorious victories always result in great rejoicing. So how is this helpful for us this morning? I don't want us to be like the Israelites who praise God for such a glorious salvation and then in three days start grumbling about how he's sanctifying us as he prepares us for glory. So if you would, go ahead and flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I know you're like, holy smokes, we just read three chapters in the Bible. You're going to read more? I am going to read more. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1. Not my thinking. This is what the Lord calls us to do, what Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus have experienced a glorious salvation. And as a result, we should be a people who respond in great rejoicing. But I'm suggesting that's not a once and done kind of thing, but an always and forever kind of thing. So we should be the happiest people on the planet, rejoicing in our salvation as we look back, but also rejoicing in our sanctification right here and now, and then rejoicing all the way as we look forward to the promised land of heaven. Why is that? Because we have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved for all eternity. We've got every reason in the world to be rejoicing in such a glorious salvation. Look at what Peter says, verse 3. He's praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us, past tense, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded right now, present tense, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's in the future. And yet in all of this, what are we called to do? Verse 6, in this, past, present, future, in this, caused you to be born again, working by God's power in your life right now, preparing you for an inheritance that is coming, a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last days. In this, in this, in all of this. Verse 6, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, why do you have trials in your life? Because it's necessary to prepare you for heaven. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Dear believer, how should we respond to the glorious, miraculous, historical salvation that we have experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation? How should we respond? We should rejoice. How should we respond with the difficulties of life, the trials and the tribulations that God has especially designed? specifically for you, your specialized sanctification plan in order to prepare you and me for heaven. How should we respond to that as well? We should rejoice. We should greatly rejoice. And how do you think we're going to respond when we get there? Oh, make no mistake. We will be rejoicing with joy inexpressible every knee will bow and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty we will be rejoicing two questions as we close number one I want to encourage you as I encourage myself to do a little bit of a heart check and ask yourself the question, what am I prone to getting most excited about? Is it your career? Is it money? Is it a relationship? Some of us have been married for what seems like hundreds of years. We're not rejoicing like we probably should in that, but like others, like a new person in their life, holy smokes, that consumes all their joy. What is it in your life? Is it the Super Bowl? Is it some team? I'm just encouraging you to do a heart check. What, what causes you to jump up from your seat and rejoice? May it be the Lord Jesus and all that he's done and all that he's doing and all that he has in store for us in the future. May that result in our lives and in our lives as a congregation in great 
rejoicing. Last question. Who are the only people not rejoicing? Boy, oh boy, what a sobering story, right? I spent the majority of the time focusing on the celebration of the saints and the glorious salvation that is ours in Christ. But the enemies of God all drowned and are dead. Who's not going to be rejoicing? Only those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. So I just want to appeal to you. There is a glorious salvation available, but it is only available by faith in the Lord Jesus. And when you've experienced that, there is great rejoicing that is not worthy to be compared with whatever it is that is causing you to hold back from believing in him. Glorious victories always result in great rejoicing. So let us be a people who greatly rejoice. Allow me to pray. Father, we're grateful. Your word is stunning to us and is so helpful for us to put life in perspective. Oh, Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who are rejoicing in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be doing a good work in their lives, that they might see him for who he is and for what he offers, the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is offered, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life and the gift of the Spirit to take us all the way from this life to being in your presence. Oh, I pray for hearts and minds to respond to the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray for my dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might be a people who just keep rejoicing, that we keep our eyes fixed on the prize, that we delight in the good work that you're doing, even when the days are difficult, even when the trials seem insurmountable. Father, that, that you are working, you are always working, molding and shaping us so that we are ready for the eternal kingdom that you are preparing for us. Father, I pray that you help us to keep all those things straight in our minds that we might praise you. Father, do that good work, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.